allow me to introduce Richard Kite, who is um, a professor at, of philosophy at Vertebo University at La Crosse, Wisconsin, and he teaches a variety of ethics courses dealing with issues in healthcare, business, law, politics, and the environment. He received his PhD in philosophy from the John Hopkins University in 1994. So I think we'll all be really benefit from an ethics lecture, so I hope you enjoy this. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. I've got a picture here of an egret. This is on, uh, I, I live in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is on the uh, Upper Mississippi River Wildlife Refuge. It's the largest national wildlife refuge in the United States. A lot of people don't realize that because it's a multi-use refuge. And, um, and rooms like this, which are designed by people who think nature is irrelevant, so we don't have any windows, I thought we could let some light and beauty in, at least on one slide. Excuse me. This is my lightsaber, I guess. This is the pointer. Okay. Um, I'd like to start out with some expectations so that you have an idea of what we're going to talk about because I want, want to make sure that um, what I plan to speak about is pretty much your understanding of, of what you want to hear. And we'll also have some time for question and answers if there's some things that I don't cover. But ethics gets talked about in so many different ways and there's so many different kinds of expectations for what will be covered in a talk on ethics or, or um, or when people say that they're an ethical dispute, exactly what that means and how the term is used. And it, it's used in a variety of different ways and in different ways in different cultures. So I want to start out with, uh, with some expectations. Now, first of all, I'm a generalist in ethics. That, that is, I want to talk to you not about what to do in specific problems you might face. For one thing, you, you're going to know a lot more about specific issues that you deal with in healthcare than I do. But I want to talk to you about how to think about ethics. And I want to talk to you about how to think about ethics so that you have a good understanding of some basic principles in healthcare ethics specifically, but then also know how to use everyday language to talk about ethical issues that you might encounter with patients who don't have any background or training in healthcare ethics. Okay? So you have to know how your patients are talking about ethical issues, how they're expressing their concerns, what kind of reasons they're using so that you can talk about them with them effectively. Does that make sense? Okay. So um, we're, we're going to go, we're going to start fairly general and then we'll, we'll move into some, some cases and so forth as we go along and then we'll have some time for some question and answer. I wanted to start with this. We have many ethical problems in our society because human beings um, have these different aspects to us, right? We have mind, body, and spirit. And another way of putting that is we, we think, we're thinking creatures, we're also physical creatures, and you spend much of your day, right, addressing the body, the concerns that go on, what happens to us as physical creatures, what we can do about it, because we're creatures subject to natural laws, okay? But we're also emotional creatures. And you're also having to deal with that, right? You deal with sometimes patients who are afraid or have expectations. We have hopes, we have fears, we have wishes, okay? And sometimes we have different people that are inhabiting different roles, that are expressing different things, and then sometimes 
just as one person. There's a certain way we're thinking about something, we're feeling physically about something, and then we also have certain emotions about it. And they can be in conflict. Let me show you a picture that illustrates this. This is from 1875. It's, a, it's called the Gross Clinic. It's a painting by Thomas Aikens. And um, this person here is Dr. Samuel Gross. And this is a painting of him when he's lecturing in the Jefferson Medical Clinic. Okay. Now this is uh, before uh, uh, um, very advanced techniques in anesthesia and so forth, right? 1875. And uh, he's operating on a patient here. Uh, and then you see all the, the students in the background here. They're not illuminated very well. You have somebody who's recording what is going on. Here you have probably the patient's mother. Could be the patient's wife, right? Mind, body, spirit, right? He's giving a lecture. He's talking about what they're doing. He's talking about the procedure. And he's explaining this. He's thinking about it. He's using it as an exercise to teach all of these students. But then you have a patient, and he just has something happening to him, right? And he's probably uh, just somewhat aware of what's going on. He's got some, would it be chloroform that they'd be using at that time? Um, and then his mother, you've got, you've got mind, body, spirit. You've also got communication going on here. And then you've got perception of the event. You've got all the sorts of things that, that go on in an ethical case. Okay. I just put that in because many of us are visual learners. And it's, it's also nice to know that the, the things that we're talking about when we're talking about ethics, they come out of our human situation. Okay. We have new problems that arise because of technology and everything else. We'll talk about that a little bit. But, but basically, ethical conflicts arise because we're human. And they arise out of this basic condition that we have this mind, body, spirit. Now, just a, a couple quick things. I'll be using the words ethics and morality pretty much interchangeably. And in our society, they're used for the most part interchangeably because they come from the same root. Okay? And they both initially meant customer habit. You have, we have a Greek word, we have a Latin word, initially meant the same thing. However, in the last 40 to 50 years, there's come to be a kind of separation. We tend to use ethics in professional and public settings. We tend to use the term morality in more personal settings. So people will talk about their personal morality or their personal moral outlook or moral views. But we talk about healthcare ethics. We talk about legal ethics, political ethics, right? business ethics. We talk about the professional we use ethics because oftentimes we mean some kind of a, a code or agreed upon principles by a group of professionals that are regarded as customary or kind of the expected behaviors that we should follow, right? But when you get down to it, all ethics is is a study of what's right or wrong, what's good or bad, okay? okay? And we might have a professional society that agrees on these are some ethical rules we will follow, okay? You might have a business that says here's our code of ethics or some organization that says that. But really what they mean is, this is what we agree is right behavior, good behavior, okay? And the same thing when we develop some kind of a personal moral code or we have views about what's right or wrong, we're just trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And there has to be some way which we kind of talk about all this. So I'm gonna use the words 
pretty much interchangeably here. One other basic distinction before we get going, and that is this idea of there's rules and principles for resolving moral or ethical conflicts, and then there's ways of preventing them. And this is important to keep in mind because we often think that, well, ethics is what you do after something has happened, okay? Some problem, some crisis has come up, you're not sure what to do, you have to figure it out, or you have a conflict with another person, you're disagreeing about what to do, you have to figure it out. Now what do we do? And that's how we resolve it, and that's an important role of ethics. But also, how do we create a workplace? How do we create an organization? Or how do we even create a family in which we anticipate that some things might come up? Change the way we act, change the way we talk about one another, so these problems don't keep coming up. That's a role of ethics, too. Okay. So we're going to talk about both of those. Now I'm going to go back through history a little bit, just say what, I, Healthcare ethics, where does this come from? And, and it has a long history, and the first articulation we get of it is from Hippocrates, 460 BC. So we go back to 5th century BC. So 2,500 years ago, we get this articulation, and it is basically, I will do things to benefit my patients and not to cause them harm, okay? So do good and not do harm. And for the most part, Medical ethics stays the same for, for a couple thousand years. So that when you get to Florence Nightingale and she, she puts forth a code of ethics for nurses, it is basically the Hippocratic Oath, okay? With a very few changes. But essentially the main part of it is benefit the patients and not do harm, okay? Does that make sense? Now why is it that Ethics isn't going to change over all those years? Well, because what medical professionals are able to do on behalf of patients doesn't really change much over that period of time. There aren't any really great advances in technology. Most of the things that happen there, uh, it's a matter of trying to figure out what is it and then waiting and see if it'll, it'll get better. Okay. And, there, and, and that's why, you know, even up until the latter part of the 20th century, um, you have doctors making house calls. Well, why? Because most of the technology can be carried in a bag to a house, right? Um, there, there may be a few things you can do at a hospital that you can't do at home, but there isn't, there isn't a whole lot. And, and so we have a rapid change at the end of the 20th century. And the first case where we really see that rapid change is the Karen Ann Quinlan case where it comes to national attention. Now, there have been some cases like Karen Ann Quinlan's before, but this is the one that reached national attention. You've, have you all heard, you've all heard of the Karen Ann Quinlan case, right? So she, she takes some tranquilizers, along with some alcohol at a party. She goes into a coma. She is placed on life support, okay? Now, I believe this is in New York. It's in a big hospital on the East Coast. Um, there are many places, even in 1975, where that would not have been possible right? Because life support wasn't standard. But here she's placed in life support. And then a decision has to be made. Will she continue to stay on this indefinitely? And, and, and uh, her parents enter a court battle to try to remove her. She's removed. She doesn't die as soon as she's removed, but she, she dies 10 years later. Now, now, this caused a lot of national headlines, and it caused a lot of people to think, uh, medical professionals, to say, we're going to keep improving technology. We're going to be able to 
be confronting this kind of situation over and over, we have to deliberate as a professional body and decide um, what should we do in these kinds of cases. We not only have to decide what should we do, we have to decide on some kind of criteria that we can communicate to the public about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Because in a case like this, it's not something that you are taught uh, at home as you're growing up in high school or, or like at home and at, at school and so forth, what to do in a case like this. This is a case that just doesn't arise in everyday life. And so you need some kind of professional ethics. So you get the rise of ethics committees in hospitals and so forth that, that are mainly a response of the increasing technology that allows medical professionals to do things they've never been able to do but then create problems and then choices, right? That never had to be faced before. Now another big development in, in, in healthcare ethics was the Tuskegee syphilis experiment from 1932. Now this, you've probably heard about this experiment, fairly famous, where, where these uh, 200 African-American men were diagnosed with syphilis but were not told that they had the disease because the doctors who were in, in this, doing the study wanted to trace the progression of the disease and compare it to men who were being treated with, um, with penicillin and see what the difference is. Now, this did not come out right away that, to the general public that this experiment had been done. But after World War II, and the discovery of what Nazi doc doctors had done with Jewish and homosexual and physically disabled and mentally ill patients, right? The discovery and kind of this horrific discovery of these very cruel experiments that had been done, there was a real examination of what we had been doing in this country. And experiments like this were discovering, we've been doing some of these same, we've been doing really cruel things without people's consent um, for good goals, I mean, the goal is the advancement of scientific knowledge so that we can treat disease more effectively, um, but you just can't do this to people. Okay. And there were, there were many cases like this. This is one of the most famous. Uh, many cases in orphanages where orphans were being, uh, had, had experiments conducted on them and so forth and, and, and looked at the development of disease. And, but it's all with kind of vulnerable populations without their consent, okay? So then you get the development of institutional review boards, which you're familiar with, right? That are going to look at, at, at any kind of studies, research, and see um, what are the risks, what are the benefits? Um, have people been informed? Do they give their consent? Do they understand? Is, is the consent written in such language that they can understand it, they know what they're agreeing to? You know, all these kind of questions get asked so that that we don't repeat these kinds of experiments. But there's a big development in healthcare ethics. Okay. Another thing, the Milgram study. And this isn't a healthcare study, uh, but it has an impact on the development of healthcare ethics because it was in 19, I think it was 19, early 1970s that Stanley Milgram did a ser series of experiments where he wanted to find out um, he was really looking, again, at the Nazis and the defense that so many Nazi prison guards and other kind of lower level officers had given uh, that they were just following orders. Okay. 
and want to know, like, how credible is that as an excuse? Is that a genuine excuse? Is it a genuine reason that people did these things, or is it just an excuse they made up? And so he devised this experiment in which um, he asked for volunteers to participate in a study of memory. And when people would sign up for it, he would tell them that they were being divided into two groups. Half the group would be people that would, would be given a memory test, and when they got answers wrong, they would be given an electrical shock, and every wrong answer they got, they would receive additional shocks, a little higher voltage, to, to do a study on whether that would improve your recall of, 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 of things, right? Okay. And the other half of the people in the study would be the people who would administer the shocks with somebody, with, uh, with a psychologist that was overseeing the event. And so they were placed in these rooms side by side. So you have the person over here receiving the shock, the person giving the shock. Now what the people that were subject to the experiment didn't know is that the person receiving the shock was an actor. And they weren't actually receiving shocks at all, okay? So they would, they would act like they were being shocked. Um, and sometimes they would, they would say, stop, stop, I, I can't take this anymore. And, they would, and, and someone would say, I have a heart condition. I, you know, and, and at some point, the shocks would increase and they'd just become unresponsive, okay? And what Milgram was studying is, how far will people go? Will they keep increasing that shock level? And 65% and went all the way up to the top level of 650 volts. And this was the point after which the, the supposed test subject, the person receiving the shocks, had become completely unresponsive. And the researcher would ask, ask the question. The person wouldn't answer. He said, well, I got it wrong. Increase the shock level, right? 65%. Now, how many of you think you would go up to 450 volts? Hardly anybody thinks that, right? We don't think we would do that. We wouldn't go along with just because somebody tells us we're going to get imposed cruelty on somebody like that. And yet, what we know is two-thirds of the people in this room probably would. Okay? Now, that's really valuable information. Just to know that, that, that depending on how you set up some kinds of structures and so forth, you can have an extraordinary influence on what people would do. And people will do things even that goes against their conscience. That's valuable information. However, um, this was, had a really terrible effect on the people who gave those shocks. Even though they found out that they hadn't actually given the shocks, that the person was an actor, they found out that they weren't as good a person as they thought they were. Okay? That their, who they are and their understanding of themselves was really different. Uh, and it had a terrible effect on them the rest of their lives. And so this is one of the things. That we just can't do experiments like this anymore. Okay? It has such a terrible emotional effect on people. Physically, they're fine. right? It's a terrible emotional effect on people. And so, a lot of the principles that develop for healthcare ethics and come out of these three kinds of, of events and study. And so I would say by the mid-1980s, there's fairly widespread consensus in the healthcare community that the, the, the four main principles in healthcare are these. Maleficence and non-maleficence. These are just fa fancy Latin words for doing good, beneficence, non-maleficence, not doing harm, right out of the Hippocratic Oath, 
right? Do good, don't do harm. That's always been the case. But then these two new ones, autonomy, which means self-rule. You have to give people the opportunity to make choices for themselves. You have to treat people as, as free, independent beings, and your role as a healthcare provider isn't to make choices for them or just to do things to them, but to help them gain information about their care, help them discover the best options so that they can make free and informed choices. Does that make sense? Okay. And this, this is really, this is the main principle that's a response to those events. The other one is justice. That is, that as we develop more and more technology, okay, and the technology gets more expensive, we have to figure out how do we distribute the care? Who gets the care and under what conditions? Okay. okay. So that the issue of justice is this question of like, how do we, how do we in this country, how do we provide for um, reimbursement? How do we provide insurance? But then also how do we, how do we structure all kinds of rules and so forth? And a lot of the paperwork and so forth that you have to deal with has to do with the, this justice issue, right? Of having certain kind of rules that we follow and so forth. And, and that's the main impetus, I would say, behind healthcare reform. We'll talk about that in a minute too, but how these principles conflict in, in contemporary cases. Okay, now here's the problem with looking at healthcare ethics and just talking about these principles, beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, and justice. Um, for one thing, they're terms of art. They mean specific things in the healthcare field. And when you're dealing with patients, you can't start talking to them about non-maleficence, right? You probably can't even remember to talk to, with your colleagues and so I mean, it's just, it's one of these terms of art. And in any profession, you have lots of those terms, right? But you have to have an, a way of speaking in ordinary language with your patients. The other thing you really need, in order for ethics to become kind of habitual way in which you practice your profession, has to be, get, be integrated with your daily life. It has to be something that, where, where kind of the basic ways in which you think about what's right and wrong with regard to your patients, with regard to your colleagues, is the same way you think about ethics with regard to your friends and your family and your neighbors. Okay. You can't have these really disparate, uh, you know, a set of different ethical principles for all these areas of our life. It has to be integrated. And this is what I've been working on over the last few years, is, is trying to communicate to professionals in a variety of areas, healthcare, but also business and in government, um, how we integrate ethics at the professional level with what we do in our daily life. And this is what I've come up with. Um, I, I call it the four-way method. And it's, it, it's just a diagram that, that you can see on one sheet, these four ways of ethical thinking. And, and it's based on this. From the time we learn to speak, right, three years old or so, we're already using ethical concepts. We learn it right away. And we learn these four ways. We learn how to think and speak in terms of truth, consequences, fairness, and character. And we learn these four ways of thinking and speaking. And that's all there are. There aren't, any time anybody says anything about what's right or wrong or good or bad, they're using one of these four ways. 
or sometimes a combination of them. Okay, is that clear enough? So um, you, have, you have little kids, playground. That's not fair, right? They learn this early on. They, before they're in kindergarten, they're already saying, that's not fair. Every time something happens, they don't like. But they, they've got this idea, right? Okay. And, 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 and they're, they're also, we also think about in terms of character. These are character traits. This is how we do things. Like what's, um, whether somebody is being rude or kind or generous or courageous, these are all character traits. It's not just what happens, but how it's done. And then consequences. What's the result? If we do this, what will happen as a result? We learn this at a very early age. And in fact, we learn these ways of thinking so well that by the time you are an adult, you are engaging in this, these different ways of thinking. You become so sophisticated at it, you don't even realize you're doing it. It's like speaking in the active or passive voice or the subjunctive mood. I mean, most of you don't even know what the subjunctive mood is, but you use it all the time, right? I can't remember what the subjunctive mood is. I have to look it up in the grammar book. You learn these things at some point in, in school, right? But grammar is something that's kind of labels for what we do, but we do it all the time. We already know how to do it, we just don't know what to call it. And the same thing here. We use ethical thinking all the time, but we use it so well and so easily, it's just as natural as breathing, we don't realize that sometimes we're thinking in terms of consequences, sometimes we're thinking in terms of fairness, sometimes in terms of character. And then sometimes when we get in a conflict with another person, I'm talking about consequences. If we do this, this and this and this will happen. And they're talking about, well, that just wouldn't be right. If I were in that position, I don't think that would be very fair. And, and I'm not hearing what they're saying because I'm focused on the consequences. And they're not hearing what I'm saying because they don't care about the consequences. They're concerned with that process, whether it would be fair. And, and, and we're just talking at cross purposes, right? And here's the odd thing. We're both right, okay? I might be talking about consequences. I might be right about the consequences why we should do something. The person who's objecting that the action isn't fair might be right that the action isn't fair. And so we both think we're being good, we're being responsible, and we think that the other person is unethical, or they're stupid, they just don't get it, or they don't care, which is even worse, okay? And what happens when you're, you're in a discussion with somebody, and the stakes are important, it's, it's significant, and you're arguing about what to be done, and they're not listening, and you're making, you have, you have good reasons, you understand them, and you're articulating them, and they're not paying attention, they're coming back to you with irrelevant things, our tendency is to get angry, right? This person obviously isn't, isn't capable of rational persuasion. Maybe I could shout. Okay. And, and I think a lot, of the, a lot of the anger that develops um, among co-workers, in families, we have Thanksgiving holiday coming up where families are gonna get around the table and they're gonna have big arguments, right? We, we, have, we just had a series of political debates, politicians getting angry at each other, and a lot of it is caused not just by disagreement, but by the way in which we disagree and the way we think about the other person when we disagree with them. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. 
That, that's what I'm trying to show. These, uh, these four ways of thinking are, are natural to us. We use them all the time. Okay? And they're so natural to us that we can easily get in disputes. Let me give you an example here. Um, I have a 14-year-old son. This is a typical kind of conversation in our household. Uh, Dad, I want to go over to Soren's tonight. He's having a bunch of friends over. Well, how, uh, how, when, when are you going? When are you getting back? Oh, we're going to go right now, and, and uh, I, don't know, I don't know when we'll be done. It might be really late. Well, it, you haven't had supper yet. Oh, I'll get something to eat over there. Well, you haven't, uh, have you done your homework? Oh, I'll get, I'll get that done later. Last time you told me you didn't know how soon you'd be back, it was like midnight or something. Well, yeah, it might get late because we got a lot of friends over. Well, when you, it's a school night. When are you going to get your homework done? Oh, I'll get it done sometime. Okay. Well, I, I don't think you can do it. Remember, you, you, need, you need plenty of sleep. And when you don't have enough sleep, you get really crabby. Okay. Dad, all my friends are going. Their parents let them go. I don't care what their parents let them do. I'm talking about what you need to do. What you need to do is you need to get your homework done and you need to get sleep. Okay? Dad, I'm 14 years old. I can make decisions for myself. I'm not a little kid anymore. Okay. What am I thinking about? Consequences, right? I'm thinking about what will happen if he does this. And that's really my focus. And I guess it should be my focus as a parent. But what's he thinking about? Fairness. Am I, be, am I letting him be responsible? Am I letting him make up his own mind? And, and the truth is, he is a pretty good kid. He does make some pretty good decisions. I don't think this is one of them, but he does make some pretty good decisions, and I've got to give him some freedom to do that. But the, the thing is, as the discussion goes on, both of us get more and more angry because he's not thinking about the consequences. And the, since that's all I'm focused on, all I hear is a kid who won't listen, okay? And all he hears is a dad who won't listen, right, to his very good reasons. And it's a normal kind of conversation that happens all the time. Okay. What is really helpful, if we can just step back a little bit and think not just what is, what is he saying, okay, how is he thinking about this? Okay. Because if I know how he's thinking about it, that gives me an additional way to communicate. Right? Look, I understand you think it's not fair. And maybe it isn't entirely fair. But there are also other concerns besides what's fair. There's also these consequences we have to consider. Okay? I mean, what I can do is I can help, help him understand that I'm thinking about that what I'm putting forth are good ethical reasons too. Okay? and acknowledge that what he's doing are, are good reasons, so that we have some kind of mutual respect. That doesn't mean we're going to agree. Okay? But oftentimes, when we have an ethical situation that's really difficult, um, we aren't going to find a solution that satisfies everybody. Okay? If we can easily find a solution that satisfies everybody, we don't call it an ethical conflict. Okay? It was just a minor misunderstanding. If it's an ethical conflict, it usually means Somebody's going to go away disappointed. Somebody's, there's, there's something left on the table that somebody isn't happy about. Okay? And so what you have to make sure is that everybody understands that you're trying to figure out what's right. You're trying to figure out what's good. 
and you have different perspectives on this, but even if you don't come to agreement on this thing, you can still work together. You, still, you can still live with one another. Okay. Okay, I just want to go through um, these really, really quickly, these, these four ways, what they are. A little bit about truth, because here's where we get some examples. Truth is one of the things that hardly any ethicist recognizes as kind of a basic way of thinking. Because you, we often think of, well, truth, that's just information. Okay? And it is, but I believe most of our ethical conflicts are caused by failures of this level of thinking. Because we don't start out with a shared understanding of what's going on. If we don't start out with a shared understanding of what's going on, we're going to jump to different conclusions about what to happen, and we're not going to come to agreement. And this is especially important in healthcare because things have gotten so confusing, right? I mean, it's really bewildering to a patient to walk into a clinic or a hospital and try to figure out what the heck everybody's talking about because it's just a foreign language, right? And the thing is, you working in those settings, the language becomes pretty natural to you and you can speak quickly and you can roll things off and lots of times a confused patient is just going to shake their head because nobody likes to appear stupid. And then you accompany that with sometimes patients who don't speak the language very clearly or patients with dementia or just or patients who are hard of hearing, right, and who are going to shake their heads. Do you have a shared understanding? This is, I think, the first obligation of anybody in any kind of a situation to prevent ethical conflicts from happening, is make sure you have a common understanding of what's going on. What are the facts? That's the most important thing. Okay. And then there are certain cases where you have to know other background information or context. What are the laws? Do we have policies at this place that apply in this situation? Are there professional standards that apply? There's these, this is all background and context, but it's important to know that, to be aware, because oftentimes that's not the case. My dad had uh, heart valve replacement surgery five years ago. My dad is 72 years old. He hadn't been to a doctor for 40 years. Okay? And he goes in because he's, he's short of breath and so forth. And they find out that, that he had had uh, rheumatic fever when he was 18 years old. It damaged his heart valves. Uh, and, and he needed replacement immediately. He should have had it many years ago. Okay? Um, and he's, he lives 300 miles from me, and, and his sister takes him to doctor, and he goes and sees a number of specialists. He's hard of hearing. He won't wear his hearing aids, right? So I, <clears throat> I can imagine he's going in there. He's completely bewildered. I mean, he hasn't set foot in a hospital in 40 years, and they've changed a bit in that time, <laughs> okay? He has people talking to him about things he doesn't know. And then the doctor gives him an option. Okay. You have pig valves or, or an artificial valve. And he explains the differences in children's picture. I think he has no idea what the doctor's talking about. Now, this is one of the things that many healthcare professionals are taught to do. You explain things to your patients and you give them an option. He decides on the artificial valve. 
I talked to him on the phone a few days later, and I talked about, I asked him, well, what did you decide? He said, I'm going to the artificial valve. Well, why? Well, I didn't want to start oinking when I woke up. Okay. Well, he makes a joke of it. But now, here's what I know about him. He makes jokes about things, right, to deflect conversation. Because he didn't, he didn't know why he chose that, right? And just a couple of further questions, he makes another joke. He has no idea. He's just sitting in there nodding his head. Okay? In many cases like that, we think that informed consent is laying out the options and then getting the patient to decide. But very often, what the patient needs is a little more guidance. Okay? And it really depends on what is their level of understanding and so forth. And this is judgment calls. This is really tough stuff, and it's hard to speak on a very general basis about this, okay? You have to take a little bit of time to kind of get to know the patient and their level of understanding, but sometimes, sometimes the best thing is to, to, to really push them a little bit, and then sometimes there has to be some kind of follow-up questions, find out, does the patient's nodding, nodding his head, does he really understand? I, I was talking last week to a primary care physician at the VA in Toma, Wisconsin, and he said in the past few months, he started asking all of his patients more questions about their care because they'll come in with some condition and oftentimes they've seen a number of specialists or on a number of different medications. And instead of just looking at the charts and kind of figuring out what to do, he asks a question like he says, well, I notice you had this test done. Um, why, why did you have that test done? Most of the time the patient doesn't know. I see you saw this doctor. Who, um, uh, who was, saw you had a doctor that, that ordered these tests. Who, who was that doctor? Well, he was, um, I think he had glasses. They don't know who the doctor was. Most of the time, they don't know what the test was for. They don't know who the doctor was. They're taking pills. They're not sure what the pills are for. Okay. We, we've, we've got a system that make sure that we get patient signatures and we, and we give them all this information. And we're really good at giving information. We're not very good at making sure patients understand it. Okay. And, and that's getting uh, more and more problematic, right? As we're able to do more and more things, there's more things that we can do. There's more information to give but there's not necessarily an increase in understanding. So this truth issue is a really big one, and it's, I think it's underappreciated. Now, I put autonomy on the bottom, because autonomy, when we're concerned about autonomy as a healthcare principle, this, one of the places this comes out of is this way of thinking about truth, okay? If you're gonna make sure that you respect patients' autonomy, then you've got to be able to find out the truth and communicate that to your patients. Okay. Consequences. This is the predominant way of thinking about ethics in the United States. It isn't in every country. In many countries and in many times in the world, character is a predominant way. But for, for Americans, we tend to look first at consequences. If we do this, what will happen? We're a pragmatic culture. Okay? So we tend to go to this first. Um, and, and yet, if we're going to really use this way of thinking responsibly, we, sh we should go through and really think, now, what are the possible solutions? We have a problem here. What are the solutions? 
who's affected by those possible solutions? Are they affected positively or negatively? It's just a way of kind of systematically going through that thinking. Okay. Benefits, beneficence and non-maleficence come out of this. Do good and don't do harm. That's about the consequence. How are patients affected by care? Fairness. Fairness thinking is basically the golden rule. Treat people the way you would want to be treated. Okay? Uh, there's some version of the golden rule in every, every civilization in their history, there's some articulation of the golden rule. It's, it's accepted worldwide as a basic kind of ethical outlook. Okay? And has real deep roots in, in our own society. So are we treating people, the, are you treating people the way you would want to be treated? And, and this is really important. It's really hard to apply this sometimes when people are in very different conditions than you are. So for example, if, if you're trying to figure, how do you treat somebody who's, who's, who's an elderly patient with Parkinson's, um, how would you want to be treated in that condition, if you were in that situation? That's hard to judge because sometimes you don't know. Okay. And sometimes you have a patient you really just can't ask them either because they're confused. Okay. So this becomes challenging, but it's something we have to make the best effort at because that's what you would want, right? If you were in that condition, you'd want somebody to make their best effort, kind of trying to understand what is this from your perspective and what you want. Does the solution increase or diminish the affected people's freedom? And this is really important. So this, is, this comes right out of that idea of autonomy. Okay. Whatever you're thinking of doing with this patient, okay, is it something that helps them be more fully human, be, more, be free? Okay. Then finally, character. Character, when we, when we use character thinking, what we're thinking of is, is how things are done. Not just what is done, how things are being done, but thinking about character traits like kindness, compassion, hospitality, generosity, caring, or greed, selfishness, cowardice, we have negative and positive character traits. We also call them the virtues and vices. Okay? And sometimes we're, we're thinking about in situations is not just um, what happens to somebody, but how it's done. Okay. I had a um, woman who was a student of mine in an MBA course a few years ago, and we were talking about these, these ways of thinking and, and and she said, do you mind if I share a story with you? She said, I just moved her across from North Carolina um, a few years ago where I was living. And I, my, my husband um, was a Marine. Uh, and he developed a, um, I'm not sure what kind of disease, but he fell into a coma. So he was in a, he was in a permanent vegetative state at a hospital in North Carolina. And she said it was really difficult because they had, to, and they were going through this, deciding like what to do and whether to continue life support and all these things. Yeah. 
But it really irritated her that the doctors kept talking about him as if he was a problem to be solved, right? Now, on the one hand, he is. I mean, they're trying to figure out what to do and what can be done and can be brought out of this and so forth. But she said, they never called him by name. They never called him by name. And one day, she came in in the morning and, and, and there was a nurse coming out of her, out of her husband's room and she said, um, Mrs. Smith, she said, um, I hope you don't mind. I took the liberty of, of cutting James's hair and giving him a shave because I know he is a Marine and he's very proud and this is something that would be important to him. And she said, in that moment, it was just like a transformation for her. It wasn't that that nurse was doing anything that was curing her husband, okay? But she was treating him with respect and compassion. It was a matter of how he was being treated, not just what was being done. And calling him by name was an important part of that. So um, sometimes uh, this, this idea of how we do things becomes tremendously important. Let me give you one more story. Ken Melrose was the CEO of Toro. And are you familiar with the Toro Corporation? They build lawnmowers, snowblowers. Don't use a lot of snowblowers down in Texas here, but we use a lot of them in Wisconsin. Okay. They build machines that are inherently dangerous. Okay. And they design them with safety features, but people keep getting injured with them. Um, and sometimes the injuries are avoidable, and they want to figure out when those injuries were avoidable, where there's they could change the design somehow that would prevent those injuries from happening. Sometimes it's just a result of stupidity and hardly anything they do at the design. I mean, people use their lawnmower to trim a hedge, you know, and they'll you know, pick it up and you know, cut their fingers off. People just do those things. And um, so there's limits on what they can do with the design. But here he is, he's, he's, he's CEO of the company and, and they would find out occasionally that they were being sued right? Because they get sued. Somebody does that. They cut their head to the lawnmower and then they sue Toro because they cut their fingers off. There was a case where somebody had had a serious injury and I can't remember where, I think they were in Kansas or something like this in a hospital and, and he talked to his board and he said, I want to go visit this person. I feel really bad. I, I don't think it was our fault that this happened. I just feel bad when our product injures somebody in that way and it, with a serious injury and I want to go visit and talk to the person. The, the corporate lawyer said, you can't do that. Absolutely not. You're admitting liability and all that. You open up the company to, to lawsuits and everything. He just said, no, I'm going to do it anyway. He just got on a plane. He flew over there and met the person. He just said, he walked in the hospital room. And he said, I'm, I'm Ken Melrose, CEO of the company. And I just I want to tell you I'm really sorry for what happened to you. And, and uh, I just want to understand what happened. And, what we could do better, right? Lawyers just thought this was a terrible thing to do. Guy drops his lawsuit. He wanted acknowledgement, he wanted respect. This wasn't a big impersonal company. From then on, they started sending out senior members of their, of their executive team 
when somebody had a serious injury and they found out about it, they would send somebody to visit the person against their <laughs> corporate counsel advice. The number of lawsuits plummeted, plummeted, okay? Why? Because people weren't concerned just with what had happened to them. They were also concerned with how they were being treated. It was a character issue. Okay? And this is something that's really hard to understand, especially in the United States, in our, because we're so focused on consequences. If we do this, what will happen? If we do that, what will happen? And, and we let that guide very often how we do things, how we build our relationships with people. And this, and this is foundational to ethics. And I, and I include it here in beneficence and non-maleficence because I think part of doing good and not doing harm is not just focusing on the consequences, the results, but how we treat people, right? Part of doing good is acknowledging people, treating them with, with respect and compassion. That's part of goodness. And it is a harm when we don't acknowledge people's humanity when we don't treat them with compassion. Okay, I have a little bit of time for questions. So that's, uh, that's the end of my presentation part. I just wanna know if there are some questions. That's it? Okay, yeah. gentleman who's 56, he's had psoriasis for a very long time. And he's been on a lot of different medications. Now he is on a medication that's injected every three months. He's doing beautifully. He's been doing this for probably about, I don't know, nine months. Yeah. So two months ago, I didn't find this out until recently, but he was diagnosed with cancer. He's got lung and uh, liver cancer. He had really bad scalp psoriasis. And he wants me to give his Stelera um, to help his psoriasis, but I'm worried about his immune system. He's on chemotherapy, and so I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. But he doesn't want to lose his hair and have psoriasis all over the place. So I'm, you know, weighing my options and not sure what to do. Um, I've talked to my attending physician, and he's in the same, you know, I don't know. So. Anyway, that's my story. Yeah. I think these are, very, these are very difficult, where you think that somebody is opting for some kind of short-term benefit at a long-term cost to themselves and making a bad decision. Um, there's a number of things here. Sometimes in cases like that, it's really important to, to know if there's family members that are involved that are also talking to the person. because. A person will think differently in one setting than they do in another, another context. I don't know if that's the case. So part of that is communication. I don't know if, uh, if that's something you could ask this patient. Have you discussed this with a spouse or husband or, 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 or a child or you know, something like that? Um, so oncologist is saying he can have it. Um, the question is, is it good for him? And, and is he aware, is it what he really wants? Now, sometimes it is. I mean, uh, uh, um, over and over, 
elderly, especially the, the real frail or fragile elderly, okay? If you talk to them, what do you really want? In these next few years, what do you want? There's some activities that are important to them. I want to be able to keep doing, I want to keep being able to go to the grocery store. I want to be able to feed the birds. You know, that, that it isn't, say, they aren't saying, I want to live so many years, okay? I want to, it's, it's often activities. Um, and so sometimes that's the direction you have to guide the discussion. It's not directly at the problem, what are we going to do here, and understanding, and what do you want? This is the situation you're in. What do you want? How can we help you get that? I don't know. Just kind of reshaping the questions will sometimes help. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, this is a common, common problem that I have. Um, I see a lot of elderly patients and then a mm -hmm. lot of chronically sick patients. And um, I'm sure everyone can uh, relate to this, but it's, you know, they say they come in with a basal cell on their nose and they're 88 years old and they have dementia. And you say, well, you know, this, it could eat away at your nose and you could live for another five years. Or, you know, we could do surgery and take it out. And then, you know, in the meantime, you're going to be in pain and, you know, bruise and you'll go through the surgery. Um, I think that's a huge ethical problem with, you know, our elderly population in dermatology because then they're like, well, how, you know, are they, is it definitely going to eat away at my nose? Is yeah. it going to do it tomorrow, you know, or I, I'm probably going to die next year? And you're like, well, you may not. And then I, I have this 101-year-old who keeps on coming in, and she's a basal cell right in the center of her nose, and we, have, we just keep on scraping at it, but it's, eat, it's eating away the cartilage now. So she's almost got no nose. And if we had just cut it out five years ago, she wouldn't be in the position she is now. But, you know... I don't know, I, I'm sure everyone deals with this all the time. I think it's really hard in derm because it's not a life-threatening condition often, but it's, it's a disfiguring condition and yes. an annoyance. And often when they get older, they pick, and the dementia patients pick. So I don't know how, I mean, I, all I do is talk to the entire family and, and try to give them, you know, like the best case scenario or, you know, you know, one, and one real important thing, especially if you have a patient with dementia, is that the family is in agreement. Now, oftentimes, you have family members who are disagreeing on what's the best course of treatment, and then you're, then you're stuck. However, this is one of those cases, it's an, it's an ethical problem because there is no good solution. Anything that you do, there's a downside to it, right? And, and a big one. It's one of the reasons why advanced directives are so important. And, and I think we ought to have a real push that everybody at a fairly young age does an advanced directive and then updates them on a regular basis. Because it's one of the best ways of preventing many of these kinds of things. It doesn't prevent it because the patient has said in advanced directive, oh, if I have a basal cell on my nose, I want you to do this. Rather, it forces people to have serious discussions about how they will make decisions about care and who will make those decisions for them if they become incapacitated. Okay? And then, then when you have family members who disagree, somebody is appointed right, as being the person. So I can say, 
to my son, I want you to make these decisions. I can say to my other children, and this is why I want, you know, I want so-and-so to make these decisions for me, but I want you to all understand. These are the kind of general things I'm thinking about. These are the things that are important to me. I want you to take them into account if something happens to me and I can't make the decision, right? And this is an important part of ethics because it's the preventative side. How do you avoid these problems from coming up, okay? But then you can be fairly confident, well, even if it's not what I would want done for myself, we think it is pretty much in accordance with what the patient's wishes were when the patient was still capable of making those decisions. Okay, and that's about as close as you can get, I think, to good, to good decisions in those cases. Uh, we've had a push in La Crosse now from the cooperation of, of Gunderson Lutheran and Franciscan Skemp Mayo Healthcare, the two big healthcare providers in the La Crosse region. A big push, and we've got over 90% of people in the La Crosse region have advanced directives. Now, it isn't just because the healthcare institutions have done it, but they've also worked with churches and, and service organizations, Rotary and Kiwanis and Lions, all those. They've just pushed to have that done. And in something like 96, 97% of the cases, those advanced directors are followed, okay? What happens is you, you don't have ethics committees having to deal with these life and death decision-making cases over and over and over. You know, you have families that aren't undergoing nearly as much stress, okay? It just tears families apart when the father or mother hasn't expressed what they will do and you have you have siblings disagreeing, sons and daughters disagreeing about what should be done, right? And sometimes that lasts the rest of their life because something is done and half the family is really angry about it. And, and these advanced directors are just tremendously important and it can be done. I mean, it's, it's been done in communities these, and, and I think it should be a push throughout the country. Well, thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your conference. <laughs>